and welcome aboard the battleship pretension decided to do the intro a little different today <laughs> i'm scott and i i'm david bax um thank you for listening yes thank you for listening. I, I hadn't been saying that uh over on my other podcast the one where i met your mother i toyed with trying to do the intro like slightly differently every episode um i kind of ran out of every without, episode like, making a yeah, fool of myself i kind of ran out of, that's like, a tall expectation for yourself yeah i started doing it i'd start having to do it in different languages or something but uh uh that would be a good gag yeah you'd yeah. have to learn some um, very tricky to pronounce words but i think it'd be a good bit uh but no actually natalie kind of solved the problem by introducing a what i think is a better um bit which is um when i do the intro and then i say i'm david and she says i'm natalie in the same way every <laughs> single episode except every once in a while she does it really bright and, and sunny and cheery and i never know it's yeah. like it's like one time out of ten it's going to be funny but i never know what it is uh and that's a good bit actually um yeah, how are how are you, uh, Scott? <laughs> well, we just talked before the show about how stressed we both are, so let's go with yeah. that. Um, yeah, we're both very stressed. But I, I'm, you know, it's, the fall setting in. I'm getting back to the movies. Um, not that I like stopped going to the movies, but there's yeah. more stuff coming out that I am interested in. Plus, like the bearing down of end of the year stuff, so that I uh, feel like I need to. Yeah, in like May or whatever, I'm like that looks interesting. I could also catch it in three months on VOD if I need to catch it for the end of the year stuff. And now mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know. I, you know, things stream faster than they used to, but I don't know that I'll necessarily be able to catch um, Smile. That's the last one I saw. I just saw Smile. I don't know that I'll be able to catch that otherwise at the end of the year. Plus, like movie like that, you want to see with a crowd. Yeah. And did boy, you like it? I did like it. Uh, I, so I went on the cheap day at the Cinemark where it's like six bucks a ticket. Okay. In like, it's not like a bad part of town, but it's like, you know, not the best part of town. Wait, this place, is the, not the Cinemark North Hollywood. No, this is the Cinemark Baldwin Hills. Um, oh, okay. I've never been to that one. Uh, it's a pretty quality joint. They actually have really good projection and the seats are solid. But And like most nights, it's like empty, like nobody's there. But on Tuesdays, everybody turns out because the tickets are so cheap. And so Smile, which has been out for like, I don't know, three weeks or something like that, mm-hmm. was yeah. packed, completely full um which was great and yeah. especially for a silly horror movie you really want to hear like the weird reactions and in some ways like the chatter of people be like here it comes here it comes <laughs> <laughs> and so that was fun yeah that is fun uh all right well um as stressed as we all are um there's a bunch of people uh who uh, up until today worked for criterion who are uh yeah. in even even dire straits uh yeah, criterion laid off a bunch of their staff today that's About what we want to address yeah uh, that's um um I, I i mean i guess i my recent discounted purchase of moonrise kingdom didn't uh save any jobs unfortunately <laughs> but uh yeah I, I don't know what to to make of that i've, I've always um been really uh like the the continued existence and apparent thriving of criterion was something that i always took as a good sign (laughs) that there are still enough people who care about this stuff that a company like criterion uh can be successful so it is um upsetting to see them making cost-cutting measures uh, yeah it's interesting i was listening to an interview earlier this week with um the guy who runs i think acquisitions for kino lorber um, another like boutique label that mm-hmm. is sometimes Criterion's like right. It's they seem more overtly the rival because they keep releasing stuff on 4K that Criterion's already put on Blu-ray. So it's like they're snatching like the 4K rights before Criterion can quite get to it. Um, but he was essentially saying like, yeah, it's a dying industry and it gets smaller every year, and more and more of the audience share for physical media dies off every year, and it's kind of like. Mm-hmm sort of facing an inevitable decline you know it's kind of like one of those things where it might just keep shrinking by half until there's still like some core left that will never die completely but uh it's definitely a, an industry that is not what it was 10 15 years ago um criterion's particular situation is interesting because it seemed like they were releasing so many things by so many different studios and getting like 
it seemed like places like Netflix and Amazon were like begging them to take their stuff. And now they have like Wally out from Disney. And so it's like as the studios and smaller distributors get less and less invested in physical media, more and more stuff gets shuffled to yeah. Criterion. And probably I would think for better and better deals because they're not, I mean, they're competing with each other, right? Because there's so many boutique distributors now, but they're not like having to beg the studios the way they used to for the, some of their catalog stuff. Yeah. Um, so quick you know, fact check the Wally Blu-ray isn't, you said it's out. It's announced or is it uh, out? I can't remember. I can't remember what I said. I don't think it's out yet because I feel like okay. I just got a press email of all things like yeah. doing interviews for it, which is unusual. Uh, for criteria. No, I really. think you said it was out. That was what uh, made me curious. I may well have. Um, I do not remember the things I say as soon as I say them. <laughs> it's getting to be a real problem. I'm got a lot of promises to fulfill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, um, but yeah, what do you I, think? I mean, this is what we're talking about, but like, uh, I feel like Pixar being in the criterion is maybe like a good sign of things to come to criterion. Um, Wally is definitely not the one I would have gone with. I don't know. What do you I think mean, of I'm that Wally guy at all? Um, there are like maybe two of their movies that I really like. I don't like love any of them. They're mostly fine. Um, uh, but I, what, I, what I mean is that it bodes well, like Disney's cooperation b- bodes well, that like the, 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 the idea that some of the Disney, uh, other Disney stuff that, that, or touchstone stuff, maybe that wouldn't like, uh, feel at home with the Disney label might, uh, maybe that will come to criterion in the future. That, yeah, that's I what I meant. But also, yeah, Wally is not like, I, I probably would have gone with finding Nemo. It's probably my favorite, uh, Pixar. Yeah, I think the stuff that would be interesting would be like the older Disney stuff. Um, but unfortunately, like any contract with Disney, you're not going to be able to say anything negative about the production of any of those movies. And so like really investigating some of the circumstances and culture under which they were made would be like super interesting. Criterion would be well situated to do so. But Disney's never going to agree to it. Right. So um, it's kind of like the problem they run into sometimes with more recent films where the directors are still alive they have they want to get director approval for everything and some directors are more amenable to like genuine criticism and scholarly analysis than others um it was interesting that like in their Wong Kar Wai box set they got rid of the Tony Rain's commentary on Chunking Express that was on their first Blu-ray release and it seemed like a little bit like maybe appeasing Wong Kar Wai who like had his Hmm. own series of weird demands for that set anyway um and he sometimes knows that with their like their newer stuff is that like it's just like it has a couple interviews has like a very flowery essay but it doesn't have like the real kind of scholarly breakdowns you get with like older stuff of movies where everyone's dead already um that reminds me of one of my favorite uh you know the uh the, that first like box set of dvd box set of the matrix movies each movie has a critic's commentary yeah. and they get like the wachowskis were all in favor of it but they get like increasingly critical yeah <laughs> as, as they go on uh it's those are a lot of fun i I've listened to those, uh, and I definitely give uh, credit to the Wachowskis for uh, welcoming that. But uh, a hard squat to the people at uh, uh, formerly at at Criterion who yeah, lost their their jobs today. It's uh, um, I you know knock on wood, I've never been laid off, but uh, really I live in fear every day. As do I. Um, I was laid off once from when I did early shift at Nordstrom rack stocking shelves. They just really? didn't have, it was just a simple budget thing. They just didn't have enough money for me anymore. Um, but that was the only time I've ever got Never been fired. I'm proud of that. I've never, I've never been fired. The closest I came to being fired once. Yeah. And let me get all the way to the end of the story before you decide whether this counts. Perfect. I, um, this is when I was new to Los Angeles. I was, a, I, I was, you know, working with the temp agency and they kept sending me to this place. It was like a, uh, it's a company you've heard of, I'm not going to say, but it was one of their office buildings. Um, it was mostly empty, but it was open all night for deliveries because there was like a, like, again, I don't want to say what kind of business it was, but they, yeah. would get, they would get deliveries like couriers coming all night. So basically they just like a security guard and they needed someone to just sit at the desk and like sign for deliveries from like 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. Yeah. And I did that a bunch of nights in a row. And um, at one point, one of the higher ups specifically asked the temp agency to stop sending me because by the time he would come in bright and early in like the seven o'clock hour, I was like, just noticeably like dead on my feet and just slumped in the chair. And he was like, this guy's not a good, like first face for people to see early in the morning. Uh, please stop sending him. Um, 
So, but like I said, let me get into the story. I was going to say, it sounds like there's more. Yeah. Um, lasted maybe a week before they started sending me again. So whoever they got after me was worse. And this guy eventually, eventually was like, I guess if, <laughs> if this is the shift for asking people to, to work, yeah. uh, this is the best we're going to get. So I was back there. So I don't, I was temporarily fired or asked <laughs> not to return. Uh, that's the closest I've ever come to being fired. The, and the temp agency told you that was the reason. Yeah. Yeah. They specifically don't because they, they want me to be, to reflect well on them. So that I guess that's true. Like, to, yeah, to tell me why, um, <laughs> what did they say when you came, when they asked you to go back? <laughs> uh, I remember saying like, are you sure? And my <laughs> contact was like, yeah, they, <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. Um, so did you like try to be more perky when you went back? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did try to be more cognizant of like, okay, the sun's up now. People are, and like in this, it, I'll say this was a place that's in the industry. And I was yeah. like, if you work in the industry, outside of like having being on set and having call times or whatever, like this is an industry where people roll into actual offices late. Yeah. Big time. Because people are like working. Cause now that I'm, you know, uh, in like the corporate side of that industry, I do the same thing. I'm, I'm like, I'm working all the time. So I don't always show up at work at 9am. Like I'll, yeah. I get up at six something and like I'm answering emails all morning. And then I go into the office. So like, the amount of people who actually would have even cared is it's probably just this one guy, but right. again, something about the entertainment industry, the number of decisions that are made to cater to <laughs> one guy and with power oh, yeah. uh, is, is pretty stunning. All right. So we've gone way too far uh, a field. I want to quickly tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I generally use them each and every day of our lives. Um, I don't I don't know if Tyler's listening to anything um, right now in uh, the facility that he's at, but um, do check out... Actually, let me finish the fucking tweet, Dad, real quick. Uh, um, I was listening to a new album from, uh, I think, Pennsylvania-based sort of uh, experimental rockers, Knife Play. The uh, the album, very sadly, is called Animal Drowning, which I don't like that album, album title, but uh, it's a great album, and it's not great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Scott, we're back. Hello. Let's get into it, shall we? But first, I do want to tell you about Tyler. Um, and uh, uh, if you want updates, listeners, uh, or Scott, uh, <laughs> you can go to caringbridge.org. Sorry, caringbridge, not Karen bridge. Um, bridge full of Karens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, I'd like to speak to the manager of this bridge. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh, no, caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. That's where you can find out what's going on with Tyler. It's also where you can find the GoFundMe. I, there's been a lot of generosity from a lot of people. I, we, I really appreciate it. I know, Ty, I know Tyler's family really appreciates it. But also there's a competitive part of me that wants to get to that 100K goal. So um uh, if, if you, if you are, are able, um, know that it's appreciated and needed because, uh, long-term medical stays, uh, hospital stays and stuff like that are very expensive. So, uh, caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. Okay. Scott, what are we here to talk about? Once again, you have come up with the topic. Yeah. I, you know, Tyler and I came up with topics for, uh, how long we've we been doing this 15 years. Now it's your turn. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so this was, uh, more top of mind when I came up with it and then everybody stopped talking about this movie, but around the time that blonde came out, if you can remember ages ago, uh, there was a lot of discussion about how, uh, Marilyn Monroe was represented in the movie and was it fair and was it not? And it just got me thinking more in general about, um, the degree to which it matters more broadly 
And I, I mean, ultimately, the answer is going to be like, you know, typical battleship retention style. You know, we'll come to some inconsistent conclusion that's like, yeah. well, it's different for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think even more than being different for everybody, I've noticed it just tends to be different about like how much any person cares about the subject at all. Because like, this isn't a discussion that comes up when it's like, I don't know the crown for example i don't hear a lot of people talking about uh the historical accuracy of that or not um trying to think of other... like personality accuracy of that yeah i'm trying to think of other something other that's kind of like popular and historical but i you know certainly a lot of film people are very invested in and know a lot about marilyn monroe and so like the fact that it doesn't represent um her uh charitable work or whatever like I'm not sure it fits in the framework of the film. And I'm not sure if you didn't know that it would really like matter. I'm more sympathetic to like the cases where people saying like, it doesn't represent her talent that well, which it doesn't. Um, but it did give me thinking more broadly about like trying to think of instances where I really cared about the historical accuracy or not, or whether it kind of like did justice to a certain person who at one point was alive. Uh well, to speak specifically to the blonde and Marilyn Monroe thing, again, there's also, in addition to all the other reasons you mentioned, there's also been um, a, a, a large reckoning and um, uh, uh, increased awareness of the plight of women in, in Hollywood and in this industry. And um, I, I, this is me not having seen the movie, just uh, uh, the idea of taking someone who is now I think increasingly seen as someone who was victimized in a lot of ways right. or, um, and, and not presenting her, um, in a strong or respectable, uh, uh respectful, I should say, uh, way. I think, uh, it pushes buttons for, for certain people because it seems to be not just about Marilyn Rowe in particular, but, um, uh, uh, about the movie sort of underscoring an ongoing problem. Uh, and I don't mean underscoring in terms of drawing attention to it. I mean, uh, perpetuating, uh, an ongoing, what people see as an ongoing problem, I think is an ongoing problem, um, in, in this industry. Yeah. What's interesting about that is that it actually speaks to a different tendency of the industry, which is to like misread the room because Andrew Dominic's been trying to make that movie for like, 12 or 15 years or something like that. And it, you know, pitched it constantly and kept getting turned down. He said it got easier to pitch post me Too movement because people started to view it as like a reflection of the horrors of the industry without like seeing the fuller picture that people would actually want to see. There was like, Oh, well this addresses abuse in the industry and thus it'll be a hot button topic and something that will get us a lot of press at least if not make a lot of money. Um, so it's interesting that it was trying to do exactly what it didn't end up doing. It's really, I mean, that's very similar to green book. I think like, yeah, totally. I think the people who made green book probably thought they were making something that was in step with the current conversation, like social justice and, 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 uh, awareness of, 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 of racism, racism, racism mm -hmm. and inequality, uh, ended up making something that is, I would argue, uh, kind of a racist movie. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and more so like the, uh, just it winning the best picture Oscar, like yeah, yeah. Academy trying to put forward this image. I mean, it was the same thing that we all felt like happened with crash of like trying to put forward a certain image of, or driving Miss Daisy with that matter, trying to put a certain progressive image forward without really identifying that like, no, it has to do more than just like say there is racism. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, about this is off topic already but that's battleship protection i was thinking about rain man recently and that how like when rain man came out i mean i was pretty young but i feel like it was like it in among other things heralded as being like what we would now say like autism visibility autism yeah. representation and i think now that like i think autism um and 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 that sort of autism spectrum has become even more people have become even more aware of it now rain man feels almost i think kind of a little bit insulting like like a caricature in in some ways and 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 maybe um uh perpetuating again to to, to use that word um some like negative or unhelpful stereotypes about autistic people um it's just interesting to see that sort of thing change and i feel like both things 
could be true at the times they were true. Yeah, for sure. And what's interesting about Rain Man is that apparently because it was such a big hit, formed such a distinct and inaccurate version of what autism kind of manifests Mm -hmm. in people. And so like now anytime autism comes up, like that's the image something people have, even people who haven't seen the movie, because even beyond the movie's impact, I think it's like embedded and repeated in other mediums and other uh, movies and TV shows and anything else. And so that people think that any autistic person is like a secret prodigy. Yeah, exactly. Whereas that's like exceedingly rare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, You know, I was trying to think, I don't know why I keep doing this lately, um, but I keep thinking of examples of examples of television. Um, Well, you love TV. We know that. I I mean, I don't. I used to to love TV. I went through a big period of being like, uh, look, here's, I've said this before. You can probably find me tweeting versions of this at various points. People in general were too hard on the lost finale and too praising of the breaking bad finale. And those two reactions have made television in general, less interesting over the past (laughs) five to 10 years. That is my, that is my point of view is that that like uh, people seem to celebrate the things that are least interesting to me about television and then less interesting television keeps getting uh, promoted. But um, the pandemic did like being just home all the time for a year plus um, did get me back into TV. And I've, I've kind of stayed a little bit back in um, catching up on some, some stuff uh, for um, spooky October month. I watched the first season of American horror story and I'm currently watching the first season of castle rock. Um, right. But yeah, so I'm getting back in, but anyway, so TV examples, there are a couple of recent ones. Uh, one I thought of, and one uh, Natalie thought of um, the uh, Jeffrey Dahmer miniseries that just, finished or is currently airing i can't remember um there was a lot of uh debate and a lot of uh, outcry from the families of jeffrey Dahmer's victims of um the morality of of depicting uh them and their deaths i didn't i don't watch like i, I didn't watch the series so i don't know how um much the victims were depicted but i know like the victims families were depicted the people who were still alive were, were depicted in like the the court scenes and stuff like that um so that came up and then natalie brought up uh um the pam and tommy miniseries which i also didn't watch but um which but pam anderson and tommy lee have both been uh have both objected to to that it was not you know uh made with their uh consent or or approval um so those are just some recent examples yeah, the Jeffrey Dahmer thing is really interesting because of how that's kind of like been playing out in the public forum. Um, and I, I haven't, I haven't seen the show because, of course, I haven't. Um, yeah. But I, I do like. I mean, I've always been uneasy about the whole true crime uh, genre. And mm-hmm. you've mentioned Natalie's perspective of like it, it confirm. I think you said like it, to her, or at least to some women, it confirms that. Uh, fear internal fear that the world is as bad as they imagine it to be kind of thing yeah yeah um which i think is interesting but i do think there's something i don't know there's, i feel like there's other way to explore that idea without constantly churning through other people's trauma for like your own entertainment and so yeah. I don't, it's always kind of like weirding me out and so especially like you see those scenes or like the side-by-side videos of like precisely recreating the courtroom um footage or whatever um, I don't know if you've seen that, but like, yeah, yeah, that's what they're like shot over. for shot and like almost gesture for gesture. And it's like, I don't know, like, what's the point? Like beyond like being able to put that video up when you release it, like what's that really doing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, do you remember the, uh, do you remember the end credits of Argo? Oh yeah. Where it's a bunch of like photojournalism of the time. And then still from the movie is there's like Ben Affleck saying like, look, look how accurate we got it. And it's like, yeah. That's the note you want to end on. I don't care about that. <laughs> a lot of historical movies do that though. Um, it was like a real trend for a while. I think it's kind of faded thankfully, but just that like idea of doing the side by side, at least picture thing to like, try oh, to well, like, like uh, the makeup disaster right. artist, which, which you hate. And I think is funny. Uh, did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I but like I don't I, like that part of disaster artist. I feel like I even um, just saw one that did weirdly. The first example of this that always comes to mind because on paper, it sounds like really silly, but when you actually dig into it, I can understand it. So the movie Cinderella man um, in it, 
the Cinderella man. I can't remember his name. James Braddock, I want to say. Sounds yeah, good. Uh, been 15 plus years. Russell Crowe. Um, he like goes up against this boxer, Max Bear, who like everyone's like, Max Bear killed two men in the ring. Watch out, Cinderella man, or whatever his name is. Um, and the family of Max Bear, the headline version of this is like, the family of Max Bear is upset because he only killed one man in the ring. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is like an absurd thing to get upset about. But it turns yeah. out, it was like mostly an accident and Max bear was genuinely really upset about it and like threw him off his career for like a few round matches and stuff like that after the point. And it was like something he like held with a lot of shame in his life. Whereas the movie makes him not to be this like hulking killer. Who's like just looking to kill the next guy he can get his hands on. So I do understand their case, but it yeah. is one of those things on paper. That's funny to think about. Uh, yeah. Um, and that, yeah, I guess that's the, because I mean, Cinderella man, took place in the thirties, um, which is what 75 years before it came out. Uh, yeah, thereabouts. Um, but I guess, yeah, the family's still alive because I was thinking of examples like the further you go back, the less, the less, the fewer people there are to object, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause I, 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 this is again TV, but, um, a huge number of the characters on Deadwood are based on real people and have their names, but like they're not they're wholly original characters you know the right. real al swearingen was not some like machiavellian <laughs> you know behind the scenes like puppet master uh or soliloquies to nobody <laughs> yeah about the state of man That's or to a native american's head a severed yeah. head yeah um yeah they just used uh, Milt's just kind of used some some real figures, but like it's really interesting when you when you start to look in at how many people, how many characters on that show are actually like named after real people uh, who were in Deadwood at the time. But it, that's it. Kind of ends there in terms of the comparisons. Obviously, with like Seth, uh, whatever uh, Oliphant Oliphant's character, like he went on to like a political career and some other things. So he he's a little bit more accurate because mm -hmm. there's more, more on him. But uh, yeah, I don't think anyone like the, I don't think the estate of uh, E.B. Farnham is uh, raised. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and raising what an estate it is. He left them a fortune. It turned out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I think also the interesting thing that's kind of shifted is with like the proliferation of information, people have more ownership over various figures um, I don't think there was like an overt controversy, but I feel like there was a lot of attention on like the Harriet Tubman movie, which I didn't see, but, um, it's unfortunately on, is not very good. Right. That's, that's why I didn't see it. Um, but there was just a lot of attention on how she was depicted because she's become such a huge figure, I think in recent years and like such a signifier of, uh, black history and the way that's been ignored for too long. And so like, there was a lot of attention on like getting that right. Um, more distantly, I think recently, like the Terrence Malick movie, The New World has kind of come under fire for um, depicting John Smith and Pocahontas's relationship as potentially more romantic than it probably was. Um, and I think just as more and more as people are taking, I mean, not like a, this is like the eternal fallacy of the internet as everyone thinks they're discovering something for the first time. Like a lot of this mm -hmm. stuff has been known for a while. That's why you can read about it. But like, as information is more widely available and more easy to share and more easily shared, um, people do tend to take a sharper eye at even things that, yeah, aren't, doesn't immediately affect somebody. Uh, so, okay. We've come up with uh, examples. Actually, I have one more major example, one that I think did bother me, but okay. partially I think, but I wonder how much this is like, I think you and I on this podcast and, and, and Tyler as well, have had this conversation going back at least to Prometheus where like, um, now you like Prometheus. I do. I should probably revisit it. Cause I, my tastes have changed a little bit, but I like, I think you got me to realize that some of the stuff that I thought was the reason I didn't like it wasn't actually the reason I didn't like it. It was just the stuff right. that stuck out because I wasn't, in the movie's thrall, right, you know? Yeah. So like the characters acting stupid or whatever, I could, I would, that wouldn't bother me if I were more into the movie. So sometimes I wonder if like, do historical inaccuracies uh, bother me more because I don't like the movie. I'll give two examples. Um, and I should have looked up the woman's name, but I can't remember her name who wrote um, 
Mary Poppins, uh, the movie Saving Saving Mr. Banks, Emma, yeah. Emma Thompson played her, right? Right. Yeah. Um, uh, that one kind of bothered me because she like it it it, it, it the the movie makes it seem like she came around and was won right. over by Walt Disney's vision for her story, which is not true. <laughs> like she was yeah. never okay with it. Um, that one bothered me. On the other hand, I wasn't that bothered by the depiction of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I was into the movie more and I was like, ah, you're making a big deal out of like whatever. So I, I don't know that I don't know how much that is um uh, I don't know which of those is more the right reaction, but right. uh it does I think for me sometimes have it has to do with the quality of the movie around it. Yeah. It's I easier think to criticize if you don't like the movie. Yeah, I mean, it might just fall under what Matt Sawyer cites as termed um, stuff you don't like when you already don't like the movie, which is something I think about a lot in terms of like, do I really not like that? Or are there larger issues at play? Um, the Saving Mr. Banks thing maybe think about because Alan Moore has been in the press this week that like someday someone's going to make a movie where they do the same thing to Alan Moore. <laughs> and it's going to be like long <laughs> after Alan Moore is dead, there's going to be something of him like tearfully alone watching the Watchmen miniseries and be like, you know, they kind of got it. Um, <laughs> the funniest thing to me about Watchmen is that, I mean, I, I guess it takes three to make a real pattern, but both Zack Snyder and Damon Lindelof seem to have convinced themselves that they would be the exception and that he would like what they were doing, even though he's yeah. like, he's, they, they, I guess you need a big ego to become Zack Snyder or Damon Lindelof in the, in, in this world. But, uh, uh, it's funny to me that they just think like, no, I, I get, I get him, but I get, I get him so much that I'm going to win him over. Yeah. I mean, I think you'd have to have that degree of like hubris to even take on the project. And like, you already know that it's going to come under tons of scrutiny and you yeah. know, that everyone's going to be at your throat anyway. So like, if you can convince yourself that much, then yeah, what's winning over Alan Moore in the screen of things. The really funny thing that Alan Moore discussed is like Damon Lindov's letter sounded like so rude and dismissive of like his concerns. He was like, yeah, I'm the latest guy ruining Watchmen. We'd love your sign off. Can you at least how to tell us how to pronounce Ozymandias? It's like, <laughs> what kind of response do you expect guy? Yeah. Um, yeah. To your second example. Yeah. The Bruce Lee thing is, is interesting. Um, I think it mostly doesn't bother me because it's like not the point of the movie. And it's such like a side thing. It also, it kind of bothers me insofar as like, it's so revealing of Quentin Tarantino's ego about the characters he creates. Um, especially the behind the scenes thing where he wanted Brad Pitt to beat Bruce Lee first. And Brad Pitt was like, I don't think we can do that, man. <laughs> and so they like, came to, <laughs> they, can, they came to like a compromise that it would be a truce um, or just like an, be able to get interrupted basically. Um, but it's like Tarantino always has that ego about his characters that like they're the coolest people in the world and they can do anything. And so he gets carried away with that more so than I think he like really meant to like slag Bruce Lee. I think he's just like so in love with his characters that he, he's like, well, of course they're going to kill Hitler and beat Bruce Lee or whatever. Like they could do anything. But I think it was, it was more depicting Bruce Lee, not as someone who could get beat up by a cliff whatever his name was yeah um but uh depicting him as like so arrogant like he was the uh he's a subject of the you're supposed to kind of laugh at him in the movie even before the fight starts because of the way that he's talking or at least that i don't know that's how a lot of people saw it i felt like that i thought it was funny um but i um am also i think that this will get us back to the um uh, uh, the the topic at the, the the heart of the topic is, I feel like I can watch that scene, think it's funny, think it's funny to depict Bruce Lee that way, but also not think, not then go like, oh, this movie is saying that's what Bruce Lee was really like. Like I don't, sure. I don't, I, I don't. It, but but I guess this goes back to the thing we were talking about on the on the episode a few weeks ago about. Um, uh, characters in movies being racist and them supposed to be the butt of the joke. They're supposed to be the butt of the joke, but a certain percent of the audience is going to think their racist right. stuff is actually funny. So, I mean, to what extent does Tarantino have a responsibility to depict Bruce Lee respectfully because if he doesn't, people will, f will, will then come to uh, 
uh, unkind conclusions about Bruce Lee, the real person. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's why people get always get so tense about anytime there's a big new movie about a historical figure, even though like most of these movies get forgotten. I mean, once upon a time in Hollywood, probably not because Tarantino is such a big director. And again, because it's not about Bruce Lee centrally, but like there have been other movies made about Marilyn Monroe that are historically inaccurate and we've all forgotten them <laughs> because like, yeah. who cares? It's like, they're not going to be as good as the real Marilyn Monroe. And they're just like, there to kind of give us a momentary memory and capitalize on our, our memory of her. And it's like the same thing with uh, Elvis. Like I really like the movie Elvis. It's going to fade because it's not as interesting as the real Elvis. And I think that's what mm-hmm. most of the, especially movies about like actors or people who uh, were alive in a time of mass media because their contributions are still present and still available. And they're still going to be interesting 50 years from now. Whereas like the depiction of them will rarely be as captivating. I think like I was trying to think of other examples where the historical, um, I don't know, misreading or reinterpretation like stuck more of modern figures. The one I could think of for sure is mommy dearest, which um, is still kind of debated as to how accurate it is about Joan Crawford. But there's no doubt that at least for decades after, and probably still to this day, a lot of the, perception around Joan Crawford comes from Mommy Dearest. Um, I've never seen Mommy Dearest. I mean, the movie's okay, uh, but I, I gather you understand what it's generally about and the legacy yes, that yes. is uh, yeah. created. Uh, okay, well, I have a couple of... Um, I, I thought of a bunch of examples and I'm already losing uh, uh, some of them, but um, uh, okay, in, in order, I wanted to talk about... Before I move on to the Bruce Lee thing, I was going to say it reminded me of something which I guess this is TV again. I don't know how much you're how, how big a Kids in the Hall fan you are. But Never I don't seen know. any of it. Oh, there's a a great sketch of Kids in the Hall where Kevin McDonald is playing Buddy Holly in the moments before he's getting on the plane that he's going to die in <laughs> and playing him as a complete drunken arrogant mean <laughs> motherfucker he's like calling richie valens like racist slurs and, and calling the big bopper fat so and stuff like that. he's just like depicting buddy holly as the worst person imaginable right before he's about to die in this plane crash it's that's such a funny idea to me um but i i can't imagine uh if tarantino did that people would be up in arms yeah um the next one i was going to uh to get back to elvis did you feel because i liked elvis a lot but did you um feel that maybe uh the the movie was like too it, it was it was kind of overcorrecting and like trying to be aware of the criticisms about Elvis in terms of um racism and, and, and things like that and going out of its way to depict him as being friends with and at home among black people right. <laughs> in so many ways. It, it that felt like a little bit of like uh um over protesting i mean it's it's definitely got big like approved by the estate vibes on it right it's like Mm -hmm. there's no doubt that the reason there hasn't really been a big elvis movie ever is because nobody could also could please the estate and still put together like an interesting story about a really complicated in many ways problematic guy um and the movie definitely like skates over huge sections of time to like Mm -hmm. escape some of that and hones in on the times where he was like either coming up and more struggling or like during his comeback and like going through that whole experience. And from what I understand, like even kind of simplifies those periods. Um, but uh, I, I didn't really have a concluding thought to that other than to say like that it works because it's, a, it's a good movie and it's a good entertaining movie. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. um, whatever like histories it, perpetuates that aren't accurate at the same time it like it's gonna fade fast enough because at least even to me when i was watching i was like way into it and like uh really moved by it but then at the end it shows like that brief clip of the real elvis and like oh yeah that's that's what i really care about right (laughs) it's like you know three years from now anytime i get a jonesing for elvis stuff i'm gonna put on the music put on the movies put on the concert whatever i'm not gonna watch elvis probably ever again um oh i might watch it again um I don't, I don't rewatch movies like I used to. 
I think uh, I, I'm too much uh, invested in like, I'm getting older and there are still so many movies I haven't seen. I have to like watch more classics uh, and uh, I don't spend as much time re- revisiting movies as I, as I used to, which that's also a part of cinephilia. I should do more of that. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, the idea of, you were talking about mommy dearest and it got me thinking of like, has there like how many times has there been a person that the culture at large felt one way about, and then a movie came out and effectively changed people's minds. Right. The most recent, or the, I mean, it's, I guess five years ago, but the example I can think of is I Tanya that like to, you know, it, Tanya Harding was the butt of the joke for so long. And I feel like I, Tanya, while also poking fun at her and her, right. and her family, um, uh, in an, in enough people's eyes did, uh, humanize her enough that I don't think you, there is a baseline assumption of how the culture feels about Tanya Harding anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh man. I, I know there's examples of this and I, I mean, besides mommy Durst, which I mentioned before, um, but uh, like other examples like that, where it's like something cast things in a different light. Oh, well, thinking of TV, the people versus OJ Simpson, um, that like, there was a lot of press about how it kind of rehabilitated Marsha Clark's image of like, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's a case where like, I'm young enough that I didn't have an image of Marsha Clark, but I learned that there was one and that yeah. the show seemed to more actively change that. Yeah, I'm old enough that I definitely remember it being a big deal when she changed her hair mid trial. Okay, and that and that being like a something that Jay Leno would make fun of or whatever. Right. So yeah, I'm definitely old just because I'm. We talk about this all the time. I'm only like four years older than you, so uh, there. In most ways, it doesn't matter, but there are things definitely in that era of mid '90s when the different that difference actually does matter. Yeah. Um. All right. Uh. uh well, we can't wrap up now. I've. <laughs> do you have any other other examples? Um, well, I, the big one that kind of came to mind is like when you're thinking about stuff that, um, is, I don't know about problem. I would go so far as to say this is like problematic, but like from a cultural perspective, I can see the case against it, but is in a movie I love so much that it really doesn't matter is Marie Antoinette. Um, which I think like complicates Marie Antoinette in a useful way, but like at the same time, any cursory understanding of her role in history <laughs> would show that she's like not the she is more actively a bad person in history and like she Mm. knew enough about the plight of the french people to not uh further encourage the french revolution and i don't know that i would ever say anyone's right to drag someone in a public square and behead them but um she was you know actively ignorant of the role she was playing at that moment in time and so like the fact that uh, the French booted at the Cannes premiere is understandable because um, it's such a sympathetic and such an empathetic portrait of her in that role. But I think it's also like, this also gets to Sophia Coppola just being a better filmmaker than I think people give her credit for. Um, I think Who's it's not giving ha- her credit. Well, I think this is a perfect example where like the image most people come away from that movie is that she's like purely sympathetic and was just caught up in the time and so insulated that she couldn't know but i think the movie is smart enough to be like yeah she was kind of insulated and that's kind of a fucked up system in and of itself so Mm. whatever like one person's complicity or not in it there uh i think sofia coppola has an eye towards the hierarchies of power and even though she's in many ways uh exploring them from inside the castle because that's where she has grown up um she still recognizes that they're is an outside of the castle and that um, there's an effect that these things have on the world. Um, and in many ways it is more problematic that people can be so cut off from the plight of their fellow man. I mean, that's um, what the is all about really, you know, in the end of the day. So I, let's get back to the question. Cause it, these are all good, different, like, avenues that this can take but um is there is this just stuff you don't like because you don't like the movie right or um is this a valid criticism and on the answer probably is that it's a case by case 
thing. Yeah. I mean, I think the big example where you could definitely say it's a valid criticism is Birth of a Nation, which depicts a whole period of history um, in such a unfair and cruel light that um, really did have a genuine effect on the public. And even if it didn't, it was uh, very thinly perpetuating an idea of not only black people generally, but specifically an era in which they, you know, post civil war where there was a chance of some, um, if not social equality, then civil equality where like black people could hold roles in Congress and could like, Mm -hmm. um, like hold a genuine legal right of their own. That was quickly like scuttled and done away with. And it depicts that whole period of history as just like chaos and, uh, just completely unlivable um and again even apart from the effect that it had it's just like to what end it's like it is an entertaining movie it's very i don't know if you've ever seen it but like i've never i can see why people were so taken with it but it's not really doing anything with how cruel it is beyond just Mm -hmm. being cruel and giving the wrong people uh the roles in an exciting chase sequence at the end or whatever yeah. Now I've seen um, clips from it twice in two to, in, in a high school class on the, an elective on the civil war uh, history class. I saw uh, clips and that, that class was taught by, I would say in retrospect, probably a certified lefty. And uh, he was definitely not using sure. the clips to like uh, to, Recruit to celebrate it. Yeah, no, it was the opposite. To, uh, and then I remember just in an, like first year of, or I guess my sophomore year of school, my first like real year of film school, just um, showing clips just like out of context, just to show why, uh, why D.W. Griffith's considered an important mm. filmmaker. <laughs> like it wasn't about the, it was, literally just about like um uh the way he would use like establishing shot medium shot close up and cut among those and stuff like that um that uh it was it was completely decontextualized so i've never seen it i don't actually know really what the story is i just know that i don't really need to see it yeah i watched it because um at the time that master cinema put out on blu-ray i was regularly reviewing discs for criterion cast um and I don't know. I mean, it's an, certainly an important movie in film history, so I wasn't against the idea of watching it. Um, yeah. And for reasons like this, that I can discuss it as an example of something yeah. that uh, unfairly depicts history. I'm, I am glad I saw it. That's it. It's three hours long, and you know, there's a ton of other movies to watch. So just to be able to like loosely talk about it in podcasts, yeah, feel smart. I don't know. It's worth it for that. Well, I don't think like some people think you're a bad person for watching Blonde. I don't think you're a bad person for having watched a Blu-ray of. <laughs> birth of the nation especially with the context oh, yeah um, i'm not trying to excuse it i'm just saying like yeah. i was more saying it as a way of like i wouldn't have watched got around to it either because as much as i like silent film i rarely go out of my way to watch them it's like it tends to be stuff either for assignment that's at a film festival or that like yeah there's some like live component that's more interesting it's very hard for me to sit down and watch a silent film let alone a three-hour one so um yeah three if hours anything is... i'm giving plenty of excuses for those who haven't seen it yeah um i have yeah. seen speaking of Oh, yeah, the most problematic films in history were off topic again, but um, I have seen Triumph of the Will, but that was yeah, also that. that was also in film school in a class on war propaganda and cinema, so it was pretty unavoidable there. Very heavily contextualized, yeah. Uh, although that class, I mean, that was the exception because most of that class was about America, like Hollywood's participation in in military and war propaganda, specifically around World War II. That's mostly what it was about, and then the Cold War as well. Um, so watching a German film was actually the exception. Most of mostly we watched like uh, um, uh, Disney cartoons and stuff right. like that that were laying and and Looney and the Looney Tunes cartoons, of course. Um, and they're like, "Don't worry, the Nazis also distorted history. It wasn't just yeah. America being the bad <laughs> yeah. guys." Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, we saw in that class there was um, this was in the Cold War um, era. If you know about the America's Good Neighbor policy, which was about like. Um, trying to have good relations with uh, uh latin america to keep right yeah to try and keep communism from gaining a foothold there that um it was i can't remember i don't, I don't want to say it was disney because i don't open myself up to fucking like slander or whatever um but some major like cartoon 
uh, outfit made these uh, cartoons that were like for the Latin American audience that are like just so shockingly condescending. Oh, just, of course. Yeah, it's good. I, it's amazing to think that uh, that the American government thought these were a good idea to make friends by depicting like all Latin Americans as like barefooted like <laughs> uh, yokels. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Sorry, we're way off topic. No, I think um, it's all fair game. Um, yeah. I don't think I actually had anything to say. I had some tiny reaction that wasn't even worth going back to. Um, I don't think I had any other major examples to note. Um, there are, oh, I guess like thinking of the new world again, there are some examples of like stuff that's torn directly from history that's sometimes interesting just because um, it's so accurate. And again, there's a lot about the new world that isn't very accurate, even though it's like one of my favorite movies and a good example of like, you excuse it when you like it, but Mm -hmm. there are sections of the voiceover that are taken directly from John Smith's diary. Um, And it's like, it's weird that like John Smith happened to be writing in a style that just fit with Terrence Malick's style of like writing voiceovers (laughs) where it's like, I'm always thinking about the wind or like, I don't know. That's just like a, making yeah, up Terrence Malick yeah. dialogue, but like, um, gosh, I feel like there was another good example of like history dialogue or like journals that was repurposed for it. But, um, just an example of how I guess one movie can in some ways get the broad swath of something wrong, even when it gets a lot of details specifically from it. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't come to this episode. This wasn't the type of episode that I came to with a list of examples. Cause I, I, know, was, Sam. I was kind of interested in just the big picture because, cause I'll ask again, like about filmmaker responsibility. I think I tend to um, approach cinema in a way that is like a purely cinematic, like treating everything as an, Objet d'art. Is that how you say that? Something yeah, I've typed good. and never said out loud. Yeah, right. um, uh, uh, and, and thinking about like, well, it is, it is what it is, but I also understand that I have like certain privileges that allow me to do that. And also I would say probably the majority of people watching movies don't think of them that way. Um, uh, and, and uh, I guess should, should filmmakers or, or someone in the pipeline be keeping an eye on fact-checking these kind of things? I mean, I just think it comes down to really like anything else in a movie. You got to think about what you're putting on screen and you can change whatever, but as long as you know what you're doing and you're thinking about the consequences of that and not like the consequences, like social necessarily, although sometimes that comes into play, but just even like if it's worth it. Um, so a lot of things get changed in movies just because it's expedient. You know, you need to consolidate two characters into one. So you eliminate two historical figures and make up a third one just to like move the plot along or whatever. And sometimes that's done and it's like totally neutral. Sometimes it's done and it's a benefit because it um, lets you avoid the direct comparison. You know, if somebody was a, real shithead and you need to depict someone in a valiant light because they're a side character who needs to prop up with the main character or whatever. Um, you can kind of sidestep things that way. And maybe that's fair and neutral. Um, but then sometimes you might be actively damaging a point of history because it's, I, I can't think of a good, good example of this, but because you're just simplifying um, what was a much larger struggle or a much like larger endeavor because you need to get through the plot in a good amount of time. Um, so stuff like that is the only thing that comes to mind. And sometimes it it underestimates what an audience can take in, you know, if you're trying to simplify things too much because you feel like an audience can't, uh, hang with the complications, but the complications would make it more interesting. That might be worth thinking about too. So, I mean, but at the same time, then you can do like a total parody and a total mockery of history that just like is endlessly satirical and have it be really smart and really revealing about history. Um, I didn't like the movie as much as everyone else, but I think of something like the death of Stalin, which like, <laughs> I'm sure the waning days of the Soviet union were not as amusing as it was in that movie, <laughs> but like it knows what it's doing with all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think there are a thousand ways to go about it, but you have to think through what you're doing with it. Yeah. Um, 
you made me think of uh well you made me think of uh a couple of examples and i'm already forgetting one of them uh oh well um something about satire i can't remember but uh consolidating characters made me think of um Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down because I happen to have also read Mark Bowden's uh, mm. Black Hawk Down that it's based on, and I remember like the the line on Black Hawk Down when it came out uh, was that it was like Ridley Scott has gone like near experimental, you know, in in the way that it's uh, um, uh, it's it's more a series of sound and image and and an incident more than a narrative but having read the source material there's actually a lot of narrative imposed on mm. the movie version of black hawk down and a lot of character consolidation if you if he if you hadn't consolidated characters it would have felt truly like uh uh disorienting because right the, the, the you know the real uh soldiers would like they were going out into the city in shifts of just like a few hours at a time. You know, it wasn't like Josh Hartnett wasn't Josh, the character Josh Hartnett is playing. Wasn't really in Mogadishu for 36 hours or whatever. It's a, you know, that that's, that's a composite character. Um, although weirdly it's, um, it feels weird to me when there's a composite character, but they name him after one of them. <laughs> like that feels almost oh, like yeah. it's kind of disrespectful to the other people that Josh Hartnett is playing in that movie that he's only named after the one. You guys didn't anyway. exist. You you guys all should have been Josh Hartnett. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're a Ridley Scott fan, right? Um, I, more Why so, we're just talking about Prometheus, so I feel we're... Yeah, I think more so the recent stuff, like Prometheus and The Counselor. Not so much Alien Covenant, although it has some interesting stuff. Um, I really liked All the Money in the World. And... I, 2049, I thought was okay. Oh, wait, he didn't write that. Yeah, um, didn't even... Yeah, we had two last year, uh, House of Gucci and um, The Last Duel, both of which I liked. Last Duel, probably more, but I liked them both. I definitely liked uh, House of Gucci much more. Um, Hmm. uh, Last Duel was kind of, to me, doing um, the opposite of a lot of what we've been saying here in terms of like ragging on his historical figures too much. It like, I can't remember, what is it, Amelia Clark? No, who's in that movie? Jody. yeah, it's uh, Jody something. Uh, Jody Comer, Comer. Yeah, it's yeah. just like all these like people who are on TV shows that everyone knows from TV. I always attack <laughs> them. Um, yeah, it, it seemed to be like trying to go so out of the way to make her character like the greatest person. And it's like we didn't. She didn't also need to be an amazing farmer. Like this would have been sad regardless. <laughs> um, so sometimes I get that. Yeah. it can skew in the opposite direction of like trying to make someone so so valiant so full valor that like it's almost like condescending to the audience of like we can just like like this person in other sorts of ways whereas like house of gucci um i know that kind of like got discussed in terms of its historical accuracy but now i can't remember to what degree it was or wasn't but like is actively making everybody involved look at least a little like bad people yeah yeah i mean i i think um well, the, the, the complaint that I mean, the Tyler and I talked about this, I think it was a top of show topic when this happened yeah. that like, there were people, the family of the, um, uh, Adam driver's character, Maurizio Gucci. I can't remember. I think sure. it's Maurizio. Um, we're saying that the movie was like glorifying Lady Gaga's character. And oh that's so like, that's so bizarre to have sat through the movie and to come away with that. I mean, like, yeah, she looks like uh, the idiot. craziest person of it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I also like I do also like that House of Gucci didn't, and this is more or less on topic. It didn't, um, it didn't glorify her, but nor did it paint Maurizio Gucci, if that's his name, as a pure victim either. Um, yeah, totally. Um, I think my I, I can't remember what my pithy how I, how I made it pithy at the time, but um, I think I said that. Adam Driver's character in uh, in House of Gucci is like Michael Corleone if he were a complete buffoon. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a he's lot the one of that... who thinks he, he thinks he's better than the family business and then gets yeah. dragged into it, but he's actually like not pulling any strings and is actually completely like <laughs> being manipulated by everyone in his life the entire movie. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that movie is like people who think they're like Godfather level people, but their stories aren't as interesting or tragic as that. Um, uh, I think that's a movie like um like there will be blood that 
if I revisit House of Gucci, every time I revisit House of Gucci, I think I will see it more as a comedy. Yeah, with, totally. with each with each viewing. Um, you don't go to AMC's, I think, hardly ever. But I'm sure you at least are aware of the Nicole Kidman ad that is played before most. I, I'm aware of it, but I yeah, I have not seen. It. I only go to AMC's for press screenings. So I'm actually weirdly at AMC's all the time, but they don't not show like, that bumper yeah. before before that. Yeah, if I'm going to a mainstream theater, um, I go to a Regal or a Cinemark usually. You should uh, or the. Uh, What's the one now that I've moved the in Van Nuys? Is it Regency? Is that a theater? Yeah. Yes. I, I'm yeah. a big fan of the Regency. Um, you should at least watch the Nicole Kidman video, which I'm sure is just available online in some form. Yeah. So that you can watch the version of the video. So the loose like thing with the ad is that she's like watching various movies from the past like 10 years and like expanding on how glorious it goes to go to the movies. And it's like all scenes from like Creed or I think it's like gravity in there, like big, you know, big audience kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so somebody intercut it with, instead of watching those scenes, she's just watching the extended sex scene of Lady Gaga just getting absolutely railed by Adam Driver early on in the movie. (laughs) Every time it cuts back to her, it'd be like, heartbreak feels good in a place like this. It's just like Lady Gaga, like, (laughs) spasmodically orgasming. It's Uh, so great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That theater, uh, I know everyone has pointed out, is is here in the Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area. Um, oh, really? the, the, the AMC where they shot that, I think it's Porter ranch. Um, okay. Tyler said he's been there. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's in Porter ranch, which I'm not sure if Porter ranch is its own city or if it's a neighborhood. I think it is. It's pretty far away. Cause I've, that's but, a theater where like a lot of like a 24 level stuff goes to die. Where like, once it's done with the LA run, <laughs> it finally finishes in Porter ranch. So I'm like, Oh, I could just go to Porter ranch. No, not going there. No, it is a neighborhood in the city of Los Angeles. Really? Now I'm yeah. like, that's, I, is it closer than I imagined? But I, no, I think it's not close than you imagined. It's Los Angeles is bigger than you imagined. I lived here for so long thinking that Northridge was a city outside Los Angeles, but Northridge is a neighborhood in Los Angeles. That's absurd. Um, yeah. So yeah, Porter ranch in Los Angeles. I can see why Tyler's been there though. It's, it's not far from uh, that hood but um too far for this guy yeah all right well i think we've uh we've solved the issue so you're welcome everyone academia we got figured out do. don't need to write any books That's or teach your any classes marching on orders going for propaganda anymore we got to figure it out yeah yeah uh you can find uh you can find us at the battleship retention dot com um you can find tyler's review of house of gucci which he was definitely not as into it as i was um if you want to go back and look for that uh at battleshipretention.com you can email excuse me david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com my other podcast is called the one where i met your mother uh and it's a a, a podcast in which my wife and i watch an episode of friends and an episode of how i met your mother every week we're nearly at the end of season three of friends we already finished season three of how i met your mother so we're filling in how i met your mother's slot with of course old episodes of the uh former uh, food network uh, quote-unquote reality show mystery diners uh obvious sub uh there uh, so check that out at uh, Battleship Retention or wherever you find podcasts. Email me at david at com or no, I already said that part, but I didn't say it was my Twitter, which is at Davy Pretension. Follow that. Uh, Scott, where can people find you should you want them to? Uh, yeah, still Letterbox is the way to go. You can read my um, very ecstatic and semi-coherent piece on Stars at Noon, which is the best freaking movie. Um, it's so good. It, it's so good. It's also one of those movies that's so good and so misunderstood and maligned that I like every time I talk about it and obviously I'm just like giving into it now because who cares. But every time I talk about it, I just like have to resist just turning it into just like shitting on everyone who dislikes it because it's like, yeah, I think I had, I'm, I'm definitely more aware of that sort of stuff than I used to be uh, as a, as a film person, like more aware of how the people feel and how movies did at festivals. But I think I had forgotten that stars at noon was poorly received at first. Um, so I didn't have any of that baggage when I went in and it was only after people started seeing it and started saying like, it's better than everyone says. And I was like, Oh, right. I guess people didn't like it, but uh, yeah, I, don't, I, just... I, don't know, I don't know why you didn't, I don't know why people didn't like it. Sometimes you can just tell though, like I can watch stars at noon and be like, I can tell a lot of people dislike this movie for a lot of dumb reasons. Um, so I think I I'm bad at that. I'm, I'm definitely, yeah. I think I'm, I'm bad at, you just like come out saying like everyone must love this. I mean, I definitely of not love, 
but I was definitely in the moment. I've talked about this in the podcast before too. I was surprised that so many people didn't like the rise of Skywalker. Cause I thought it was a perfectly fun time at the movie at the movies, you know, and yeah. it was only after I started reading reactions and reviews that I was like, Oh, right. People care about all that stuff that I don't <laughs> care about. Yeah. I didn't even think to care about that. So I think I'm, I'm bad at, at, at sometimes thinking about how other people are going to uh, receive something. Yeah. I think with blockbusters, I definitely have that same thing. Uh, anyway, letterboxd uh, once a week or so Twitter's open to follow, or you can request to follow anytime. Um, I'm just staring at my shelves. Another movie that does history dirty, but well is the movie Dick. <laughs> dick's so good yeah yeah that's uh-huh. a great example yeah anyway yeah. that's all i got and i love i mean dick also does the thing not to the extent of kids in the hall but like taking revered fig- figures like woodward and bernstein yeah and, that's my favorite and, part of it yeah making them uh, uh subjects of ridicule <laughs> complete buffoons <laughs> yeah i love that all right uh thank you uh for joining uh me scott and filling in for tyler and being almost as good i forgot to say that part yeah i won't be here next week so someone almost as good as me will have to fill in <laughs> we'll see uh thank you at home for listening we'll get you, i won't get you next time but you will yeah bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 